Let us start with a word of prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you for the gifts of your word and the word made flesh. Open our hearts and our minds as we turn to them and send us your spirit that we may understand your teachings rightly and truly and to apply what we learn in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's sermon will be extracted from Galatians 2, 1 through 9, which, of course, was read to you earlier. Let me first summarize the entire passage in brief, and then we'll examine some of the most critical issues therein more closely and what they mean for us today. Paul begins by establishing his independence from the apostles in Jerusalem, mentioning he had let quite some time pass between the last time he had been there. And even the last time he had been there, he'd only been there for about two weeks or so and had only seen Peter and James. We get the impression that though some had heard of Paul's amazing conversion from a persecutor of Christians to, to a promoter of the gospel of Christ, but when it comes down to it, Paul was basically kind of a nobody back then. In other words, Paul evangelized in relative obscurity for, for a time and worked apart from anything that anyone in Jerusalem was planning or doing. If the original apostles who had served with Christ during his earthly ministry and all the other disciples who had experienced you know, those, those miraculous signs at Pentecost in Jerusalem, if they were, if you think of it as sort of a town posse raised by Sheriff Jesus and Marshal Holy Spirit, then Paul was a lone gunman who had rode in from nowhere and then rode right back out into the borderlands. Who was that mysterious stranger? But through Paul, God would, of course, have big plans and eventually bear much fruit. Fourteen years later, Paul returned to Jerusalem, along with some men that had been converted through him, uh, Barnabas and Titus. But note here again that Paul did so not because anyone in Jerusalem had asked him to report in or anything like that. Paul went to Jerusalem because God told him to, just like how Jesus personally convicted Paul on the road to Damascus, that is, by direct miraculous, divine revelation, completely independent of anyone in Jerusalem. And the purpose of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem was to confirm with the apostles there that the gospel that he was proclaiming to the Gentiles was the same gospel the apostles were proclaiming to the Jews. And the apostles, namely James, Peter, and John, did agree that they all spoke with one voice when it came to the truth of the gospel, particularly concerning the implications on one of the most serious, important uh, controversies of the day, which had to do with the role of circumcision in the early church. Now, what was this controversy all about? Well, it came down to this. Christianity was born out of Judaism. And circumcision is a big deal to Jews. Not to sort of belabor the point, but remember that Jesus 
was a Jew, even descended, in a manner of speaking, from the very line of King David. All of the original apostles were Jews. Paul was a Jew. Whenever Christ and his apostles, including Paul, talk about the paramount importance of the scriptures as the authoritative and inerrant word of God, they are contemporarily referring to the Hebrew scriptures because the New Testament had obviously not been written yet. So it is little surprise that some of the early Jewish converts to Christianity simply could not imagine giving up their identity as Jews. And circumcision was one of the sine qua nons, that is the, to say, without which not elements of Jewish identity because the Old Testament ritual of circumcision was the indelible sign of that identity. And for some of these, some of these hardcore Jewish Christians called Judaizers, it actually became more than just a sign. It became an issue of salvation. Putting it in the simplest possible terms, the Judaizers claimed that you had to believe that Christ died for your sins and you had to be circumcised. To which Paul basically uses his letter to the Galatians to say, poppycock. Anyone who thinks you need to be circumcised in order to be saved is a fool. And then of course he explains why. Now, 2,000 years later, circumcision is no longer a hot topic in the church today. But though we may not believe what some of the Galatians believed about circumcision and salvation, we might do well to reflect upon what other things we might be also adding to the gospel. But before we do that, although I had mentioned that circumcision was this you know, sign of Jewish identity, we need to really really grasp and apprehend in even greater detail what circumcision meant and why it was thought to be so critical, so important, so necessary. Well, first of all, circumcision, of course, was not some sort of recent invention, even at the time of Paul, right? It had been an ancient practice, over 2,000 years old by the time of Paul, and as you may recall, it came about when God first established his covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. God commanded then that the ritual of circumcision be administered to every male who, as representatives of the people as a whole, were set apart as God's people, which became the Jewish nation. Circumcision is, of course, a cutting rite. Physically, it involves cutting a little circle of essentially superfluous foreskin off of the end of the male flesh. But symbolically, this cutting was a sign of the Old Testament covenant between God and his people. And this sign of the covenant was an important tradition that was over 2,000 years old. Now, let's, let's think about a little bit what that word tradition means for a moment. Because tradition, any of you have watched Fiddle on the Roof, y'all, there's that song, Tradition. Anyway, never mind. Because tradition is a word that is often used in different ways in the New Testament, particularly when Jesus admonishes the Pharisees for replacing the law of God with the traditions of men, that is, human traditions that were interposed 
or added in such a way to encumber or even negate the very law of God. When the Pharisees were guilty of such things, Jesus was not at all shy about raking them over the coals about this sort of godless rubbish which we would today call legalism. That is, the imposition of a hard law on people that is not of God, but of man. And because of those rebukes we read about coming from our Lord Jesus, we might have the tendency to think that the word tradition itself must always be a bad thing. But even Paul speaks elsewhere, not only of the traditions of men, but he speaks of tradition in the sense of something that is given over from one generation to the next and to the next, such as, of course, the apostolic tradition, which is not of human invention, but is of divine ordination, which is very important because, of course, that is how we are able to trust the very scriptures that we are studying today through the tradition of this handing down of the word of God from apostle to apostle to scribe and so on and so forth until the present day. And now, of course, not all human traditions are, they're not all bad either, right? Uh, some tr traditions are good and there's nothing wrong with them. But here's the thing, circumcision is not even simply a good or, you know, at worst, harmless human tradition. Circumcision was ordained by God, and it was a commandment given to Abraham and to all of his descendants, a law which defined the identity of the people of God, the entire Jewish nation. In more detail, what, what the cutting nature of circumcision meant or signified was, was actually two things. On the one hand, uh, this tradition that God instituted in circumcision was God speaking to the whole world. It's God's way of saying, in a sense, to the whole world, out of all the people and out of all the nations of the world, I have taken this people this nation, and I have set them apart. I have cut them out of the rest of the world in order to have a unique relationship with them. And on the other hand, the second part of this symbol from the cutting nature of circumcision, of the circumcision tradition, is coming from the human side of the covenant where the human member of the covenant, the Jewish male, is basically saying to God, God, if I disobey your covenant, may I be cut off from your presence and cut off from your grace, just as the foreskin of my flesh has been cut off from me. So circumcision was the identity of the Jew, both in the positive as well as in the negative sense of the sanctions of both blessing and curse and how important this was to them. For example, you may remember that time when you know, David was a young shepherd and the enemy of the Israelites were the Philistines and the Philistines were at war with the Jewish people. And every day, the champion of the Philistines 
this, this literal giant of a man, Goliath, you know, whatever, so many cubits tall, uh, he would come down from the mountain morning and night and challenge in a loud voice the entire nation of Israel. And he would say, send me your champion. I will fight him. And one-on-one, if I defeat him, then your nation will surrender to us. And if your champion somehow defeats me, well, then my nation, the Philistines, will surrender to you. And day after day, Goliath would announce this challenge, taunting the Israelites. And how do the Israelites respond? Not well. They were utterly terrified. They were paralyzed by fear. Nobody had the guts to fight Goliath. Until, until one day, David, visiting the army because he and some of his brothers were involved in in bringing provisions to bringing chow to the troops, you know, David hears this challenge coming from the lips of Goliath. And and he is just beside himself. He can't believe what he's hearing. Even more, he can't believe what he's seeing. I mean, all of his brothers and the, and the entire Israelite army, and even the king, even the king, petrified in fear, refu- refusing to answer Goliath's challenge. And then what did the young David say? What did David say? He said, he said this, Who, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? And the king eventually hears and sends for David. And and of course, at first the king is, I mean, he can't believe this either. I mean, he's incredulous. He says, oh, I mean, look at you, You're, you're too young. But, but David is persuasive, insisting that just as he has killed lions and ti- not tigers, lions and bears, <laughs> lions and bears, so shall he kill this uncircumcised Philistine. And David, David doesn't even need sword or armor. I mean, those things just weigh him down anyway. He's light. David just needs. David just needs stones to fight and his sling and the God of Israel by his side. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story. But notice there how David defined the stakes of the fight. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? So this was the identity of Israel. 2,000 years, 2,000 years later, and all of a sudden, the apostle to the Gentiles, this, this Paul guy, he shows up out of, you know, coming from the, out of nowhere to the Galatians, and he says, even though God commanded Abraham and all his seed for generations upon generations to be circumcised, and even when Moses, back in the day, you know, failed or was, was late in circumcising his son, God seemingly almost killed him for it. And now this Paul guy is saying, you don't have to be circumcised anymore? I mean, how can this be? 
The Galatians are saying, I mean, not unreasonably, you know, from their point of view, we've always been circumcised. If you want to be on the right side of God, you can't be somebody who is uncircumcised. And if you're going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, as you've brought it here, then, hey, I mean, we insist that any convert subject themselves to circumcision. Now, Paul comes to Jerusalem to meet with at least some of the original apostles, and he brings with him this Gentile convert, Titus, who is uncircumcised. And he recounts this incident to the Galatians, and he basically says, you know, hey, what about Titus? I brought him to Jerusalem. And Titus, he wasn't circumcised when I brought him there. And when I consulted, you know, with with Peter, James, and John, uh, we left with the right hand of fellowship. And when we left, Titus was still uncircumcised. I mean, yeah, Timothy, and we circumcised him, but not Titus. Why? So, So in my line of work, in my day job, Uh, My colleagues and I spend a lot of time reviewing laws and reviewing the activities of my company and trying to determine whether or not the activities of our company are in compliance with the law. And, uh, you know, oftentimes whether we are in compliance or not is going to revolve around the question of whether we may do something or whether we must do something. May or must. This difference between may or must is all the difference in the world. Paul said, with the fullness of time, with the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom of God and the coming of the Messiah, all of which was being communicated for 2,000 years by the signs of the Old Testament covenant, when that Old Testament covenant was fulfilled, and Jesus changed the terms of the covenant at the Last Supper when that covenant was fulfilled and the new covenant was begun. The new sign of this covenant is, we did this a couple weeks ago, right? The new sign of the new covenant is baptism, not circumcision. So now the question is then, well, what do we do with circumcision? Paul says that now, although it was obligatory to the Jew in the Old Testament and was then a matter of must, now, with a change in the fulfillment of redemptive history, circumcision is now a thing that, frankly, doesn't really matter anymore. It it is indifferent, or, you know, the the fancy theological word to describe such a thing is adiaphorus in the New Testament. Paul explains that the principle of what is adiaphorus when he deals with a question of food that is offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8. You may recall that when he deals with that subject there, uh, there were those in the community of Christians, uh, and you know, there were those who noticed that uh, one of the practices of pagan worship was, was to offer oblations such as food, Piles of food offered to these, to these dead idols of these false gods for religious ceremonies. And when the ceremony was over, they would take the food that was left over from these, from these pagan rituals and take it to the market and sell it for people to eat. 
And some of the Christians there, they, they saw this, they looked at this and they had scruples about this, saying, you know, basically, like, we, we can't eat that stuff. I mean, that food was part of pagan worship. It's evil. It's now untainted, or it's, it's unclean and it's tainted. And because of that, it would be a sin for us to eat that unholy food that had been offered to idols. And so how does Paul handle that? He essentially says, you know, that food, it's just food. It doesn't somehow magically change its essence just because some, some pagan used it in an unholy religious ceremony. A steak is a steak is a steak. You can eat steak. And you don't have to have this scruple. And if you have this religious scruple, guess what? You are the weaker brother. I mean, however, of course, Paul did also say there that if you have a weaker brother whose conscience is sensitive to the eating of food uh, that was offered to idols, even though in and of itself it's a matter of indifference, if I, if I care about my brother and I care about his, his sensitivity, his conscience, then I'm not going to eat food offered to idols. I don't have to eat food offered to idols. It's a matter of indifference. It's a matter of liberty. I'm free to eat it if I want to, uh, but for the sake of my weaker brother, I'm not going to. I won't do it. Now, you're all familiar with that principle. What Paul is saying here is, you may eat it, but it's not required. This is the difference between may and must. And this is also what he is saying about circumcision. Now that the new covenant has arrived on the scene, you may continue with circumcision, just to, you know, circumcise Timothy. But it's not a law anymore. It's not obligatory, it's not binding. It's not binding on the Gentile convert to have to submit to this circumcision thing. It's a matter of indifference. It's adiaphora. You may, but it's not that you must. Do you get the difference? Well, unfortunately, not everyone gets this difference. I think it's a human nature sort of a thing because, I mean, we all know people, and I mean, and you know, maybe some of you are one of them, uh, we know people who are raised in a very strict, uh, good Christian home, and you were taught from childhood that, I don't know, it's a, it's a sin to wear makeup, or it's a sin to go dancing, it's a sin to consume alcohol, it's a sin to go to the movies, it's a sin to do this, it's a sin to do that, all kinds of negative prohibitions that you can't actually find anywhere in Scripture. But people have added to the law of God. People have added these, these taboos, these human ideas of right and wrong. And so these people thinking that they are being obedient wouldn't, for example, uh, you know, they wouldn't let a single drop of wine pass between their lips lest they be disobedient. But in fact, this is a part of that category of things that in and of themselves are adiaphorous, indifferent. Because what? 
Because a, a glass of wine, by itself, in and of itself, a glass of wine has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And it was not invented by the devil. You can have a little pinot, or no. God doesn't require you to taste wine, and God doesn't forbid wine. If you believe it is wrong to drink any wine, even though objectively the mere drinking of a single glass of wine is not wrong, well, then it is actually wrong for you to have wine. But, if, but, what, if, but what if someone stands up to, in church one day and says, no, this must be the universal law of the church, that no Christian may ever partake of even the smallest sip of alcohol. What do you think the Apostle Paul would say to that? Would he break out the Merlot and serve it at the next communion? I mean, I don't know about that. I do know that he would say that we must be sensitive and loving and care about the weaker brother. But I also know that he would also say that never, never, ever may we submit to the tyranny of the weaker brother. We must never allow merely human scruples to be elevated to the level of universal divine law in the church. And that was exactly what was going on here with the Judaizers among the Galatians and their insistence on the must of circumcision. They wanted the may to become a must. And so Paul is saying, no, it, it's adiaphora. It's indifferent. I know you had this, this wonderful, rich tradition given to you by God himself, and that tradition existed for a very, very good reason for a long, long time, but now that reason has been fulfilled. If you want to continue in the old tradition, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if you try to make it a requirement in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, then I will fight you about it to the death. And so Paul says in verse 4, because of false brothers secretly brought into who, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul, of course, was, he was all things to all people. When he was with the Jews, he dealt with the Jews as a Jew. When he was with the Gentiles, he dealt with the Jews in, in matters of indifference. But in, in matters of divine obligation, he would never submit himself to these acts of tyranny and legalism that would destroy or besmirch the gospel and the liberty that comes with the gospel. And, and he talks about those who are, who are these false brothers. They weren't true brothers. They were, they were phonies. They weren't converted Christians. They were, they were actually truly unconverted. But they had their former relationship to Judaism, so they were fighting for this tyranny. And so they would spy out Paul's liberty, waiting for a smoking gun kind of gotcha moment. Ha! They would point out, we saw that you circumcised Timothy, but now you won't circumcise Titus. We caught you, Paul, in your, in your hypocrisy. Sort of like, Maybe catching somebody at a restaurant, sipping a glass of Chardonnay when he is supposed to be a teetotaler in today's church. 
Woe to those false brothers. Now, all that being said, people say all the time that whenever we are called to obey the law of God, that is legalism. But no, that is not legalism. Legalism is when you add laws that God never prescribed. Legalism is when you substitute salvation by the works of the law rather than by faith alone and by grace alone. But obedience to the law of God is not legalism. Obedience to his law is our duty and it it is righteous for we are called to obey the law of God if and when we ever encounter them in scripture. If you you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Now Paul will later on in Galatians talk about how we balance that kind of obedience with this liberty thing that we're talking about this morning and what kinds of laws have passed away and what kind of laws we are still obliged to obey and what the significance of the laws we must still obey have in our lives. All those critical issues are ahead of us in another sermon later on. Uh, as we continue the study of Galatians. But in the meantime, here, returning to our text today, the apostles were of one mind, one voice, and basically said, Paul, we recognize your call. God has anointed you to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and we stand with you that you are not to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. And Paul says to to Peter, James, and John, who are ministering to the Jews, you are the apostles to Israel. If they want to be circumcised, that's fine, as long as, as as long as it no longer has the force of divine law. As long as we all understand that we all have this responsibility to declare with one voice the gospel in its purity with all of the freedom that is contained within. Let me close with some questions. Do you understand, as Paul taught, that the gospel means that Christ has perfectly fulfilled the old covenant and given you the new? That because of his work in his life, as well as the work of his death upon the cross, you are saved not by any works or obedience of your own, but by grace alone through faith in Christ? That when you obey him, you do not obey in order to be saved, but because you love him, then embrace the freedom Christ died to give you and resist the tyranny of false musts. Turn away from false legalisms and love God and love one another as free men and free women in Christ. And by this, you will honor the truth of the gospel preserved for you. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you and we thank you and we pray that you will bless us abundantly as we continue to study your word. Use us today and in the days ahead in your service and for your praise and glory until Christ our King returns for us all. In his name we pray. Amen.